Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. It is by the breath of God that you inspired men to write these true words for our good today. So Spirit, we need you to open our hearts, to open our ears, to use my words, Lord, to change and transform us. So Father God, may we be open and receptive to the working of your spirit and the power of your word for the glory of your your name. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Well, this is going to start sounding repetitive, and I'm sure you've kind of heard this before, but it's always good to, to hear this again. The book of Exodus is not about Israel. The book of Exodus is not about Moses, and it's not about Egypt, and it's not about Pharaoh. The story of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt is meant to tell you something about God. That's the purpose. And while Israel's suffering in slavery and their deliverance through the ten plagues is a significant part of the Bible, the real storyline is the declaration that Yahweh, God, is the one and only God. The one and only true God. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob is a covenant-keeping God. And the powerful nation of the earth, no powerful nation on the earth, will ever be able to stand in God's way from drawing His people to himself no one is able to stop god god is going to glorify his name in all the earth and he will use pharaoh and he will use egypt and he will use the exodus in order to send a very clear message israel pharaoh and the exodus are the canvas upon which god will display his glory We've heard it in Exodus 6, 6 and 7, where it says this, Therefore say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from underneath the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You will know this by everything that I do, everything that I say. You will know ultimately that I make promises, I am a covenant-keeping God, and I am the only one you shall serve. God intends to deliver his people, not only to relieve them from the injustice of slavery, but to make his name known in the entire world. That is why our study in the book of Exodus is divided into various little mini-series, if you will, to show us what God is up to. In Exodus 1 through 6, it was the God who hears. And in Exodus 7 through 12, we saw a God who delivers. We watched God as he reveals his plan to deliver his people. And we marveled at God's ability to powerfully rescue his people through the plagues which were designed to attack and challenge the very gods, little g, of Egypt. Our current mini-series is the God who provides. And it is a remarkable section that brings us all the way up to the foot 
of Mount Sinai where God will give His people His law. Chapters 13 through 18 will show us the way in which God is able to deliver His people and provide for their needs along the way. Remember when the children of Israel left, they left with all kinds of goodies, right? They left with all the gold and the silver that the Egyptians said, go, just get out of here. Take our gold, take our silver. Just go, get out of here. Because if you stay, we are all going to be destroyed. But they take any provisions, food, anything, any water, anything like that? No, they just plundered the Egyptians as they departed, but they did not have the necessary provisions in order to to survive in the wilderness. And this was by divine design. God aims to teach his people something very important in this season. A God who delivers is a God who will provide. And that's something we need to remember. A God who delivers you is also a God who is going to provide for you. The people belong to Him. They are His. Through redemption, as we saw last week, they are His. The first, the consecration of the firstborn, the feast of the unleavened bread were, were meant to demonstrate that Israel belongs to God. They are His precious precious possession god did not deliver them in order to abandon them he did not redeem them only to desert them god is going to provide and that's something that we also need to remember it's true for us as well god did not deliver you from where you once were in order to abandon you he did not redeem you from the pit of sin and destruction only to abandon you later on god does and he will provide But the reality is, is this is not an easy lesson to learn. Even though Israel had just witnessed one of the greatest deliverances in human history, the death of the firstborn child, they had just seen it, and they were just given all the gold and the silver. Could you imagine? These were slaves, and now they're walking out with their arms full of all kinds of loot. And now... They had just seen this, and they will still, right now we are going to see them struggling with fear, panic, and a shaky faith. The dust of Egypt had not even settled yet, and Israel will face a huge test on the bank of the Red Sea. Can God be trusted? Will he really take care of us? Is he really going to help us? Was he... The exodus just an an anomaly? Will God really provide? Aren't these questions that we always ask? Is God going to help me in the midst of this terrible, messy situation? Is God going to provide for me? Is he going to take me out? Was that one opportunity when I saw his hand just a strange anomaly? Or is this the character of God, how God works? Those are questions that we can all relate to. I know I can. You see, even though God has proven himself faithful over and over and over again, and even though God has done amazing things in my own life that seem almost nearly miraculous, it is still very easy to panic when things look bleak or difficult. 
There are times when I need to be reminded, fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. So let's look at this story of the Red Sea deliverance and see what we can learn about Israel and about ourselves, and most importantly, what we can learn about our God. First of all, the first lesson is this. The first lesson we see in this text is the simple but important fact that Israel's steps are ordered by the Lord. God is in control. That is the first thing that we have got to know. There are no mistakes. There are no coincidences. Everything, everything, underline, circle, highlight, make it well known, everything, including the most difficult things in your life, is part of God's plan. Everything. God is orchestrating the events in our lives in order to serve a divinely designed purpose. Everything in your life is orchestrated by God so that ultimately God is going to be glorified. Do we understand it? Usually not. We're in the midst of it. What do we fear? Panic, right? We get all shaky. We break out in the sweats. We start, our, our heart rate gets crazy. But ultimately, God is in control. Chapter 13 left Israel on the edge of the wilderness with the presence of God mediated through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And in chapter 17, we see that God has directed their path. They were told to turn back and encamp in front, in front of Pi-Hirioth and between Migdal and the sea. Now, we're not the, exactly sure of all the exact locations of these areas. There's a variety of opinions. Trust me, I read through this, and there are all kinds of conflicts about exactly where is this city, where is this city, where did they cross, all that kind of stuff. And there's no specific cross point of crossing, even though there's many scholars who say here, some will say here. The reality is that no one can identify these things with certainty. However, we do know with certainty that God is the one who directed his people to these specific places that Israel was going to camp. God directed them. And if you look ahead to verse 3, you will see that this location would have sent a, a message that Israel was lost and they were a bit trapped. And I wonder if Israel, as they were setting up their camp, if, if a few of the more military-minded military men in their group would have looked around and said, you know what? This spot that we're camping is not the best place. We do that with our church camping trip, right? And we even looked this year going, okay, uh, a bunch of these ash trees were one time alive and giving us great shade. Right now, they're dead. Maybe next year we need to find another spot. This is not the best place for our good. In the same way, these militarily-minded men were going, this is probably not the best place. To the west we have, the west and the south we have mountains, and the Red Sea is on the east, and if Pharaoh attacks, obviously flight is impossible. Our defense as slaves, freed slaves, is hopeless. We are trapped. And what I find very interesting and helpful is the fact that God has multiple goals 
with his choice in this location. First, he knows that word is going to get back to Pharaoh, that Israel's journey appears to have taken some kind of a misstep. So he's, God knows, he has appointed this, that word's going to get back. That Israel is lost. These idiots out in the wilderness, they, their back is up against the wall. And secondly, this location would provide the context for what comes next. The second greatest deliverance of God's people. And third, we've got to remember that the ultimate end game is for God to glorify himself. We see that in 14 verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Do you see how this all converges into a simple choice of where Israel is to set up camp? All this comes, comes together. This location is the nexus of Israel's faith, Egypt's defeat, and God's glory. It is that point where it all kind of comes together, all in one point. And you, you can see now, when we look at the situation through the lens of biblical history, we can see that. Wow, look at how all these, these three things kind of all work together. But at the time and at that very moment, the choice of this location must have seemed absolutely misguided, right? Misguided and even a mistake. That's why Israel's heart is pounding. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that wisdom has no role in God's will and his purposes. In another situation, God could have revealed his will through the counsel of some wise person who said, you know, I, I don't think this is a good place to camp. And I don't think that we should take a cavalier attitude that you should be reckless or foolish or thoughtless while hoping that God will just bail you out. There is a place for good wisdom and wise counsel from brothers and sisters and looking through Scripture, wise counsel. A few years from now, sometimes in our situations, a few years down the road, you are going to be able to look back in your life and you're going to be able to see God's hand in it all. But right now, the circumstances of life can seem absolutely crazy and out of control. But here's the comforting thing about Exodus 14. It is very helpful to know that even in the hardest places, there are divine purposes behind them. So wherever you are finding yourself today, some for some reason, there are divine purposes behind all of these things. In other words, God is always orchestrating the events in our lives, even putting us in situations that are going to be difficult or even scary. And while we may never, ever understand all the reasons behind the circumstances in our lives, we can certainly take comfort in the fact that nothing, even the trials in our lives, are out of God's control. I, I even... I don't know how many of you watched the news about what is going on in Iraq. How many people are watching that? Oh it is, you look at that and you go, God, where are you at? Right now, a group called ISIS is now persecuting 
men, women, and children who are not Muslim, they are beheading children, crucifying men who will not convert or who have converted, and it's not enough. Even in that situation, God is in control. God is in control. We may not understand why God has us where we are right now. We might not understand why this, this is going on in the, on the stage of the world right now. It, it's terribly frightening. It's terrifying for them. It is a life or death situation. But even though we are not in control, you can rest in knowing that God is absolutely in control. There is not one corner of the world where God does not know what's going on and where God is not saying, let it be. Let it be so. We can take comfort in this thought that, God, I don't know how this fits into your plan, into the plan for my life, but I'm going to rest in the fact that you are in control of what is going on right now, and this fits your purposes for me somehow. God is in control. The second thing that emerges from this text is the way that Israel was so, at one time so quickly embraces uh, God and his deliverance. And now he, they're embracing everything with this, this heart of fear and this heart of panic. This is going to be the pattern that we are going to see repeated over and over in our study of, of Exodus. When difficulties come, they are quick to jump to unhelpful or even a, a sinful mentality. Fear can quickly compromise your faith, right? How many of you know that? Fear compromises, can compromise your faith. And even though you know better, and even though you've seen what God can do, fear somehow takes over. In Israel's defense, the situation that they were about to confront did not look good. They were cornered. There was no way out. Verses 5 through 9 tell us that Pharaoh regretted letting Israel go, and therefore he summoned his entire army to bring the people of God back. He, he made ready his chariots. He took his army with him and took 600 of his, I love how they put in there, chosen chariots, not just chariots. It's like going to the car lot and picking, I want the best high-performance chariots. I want to take those all those, not that one. That one's kind of junky. I want that one next to it. I want to take the best chariots, the chosen chariots, and, and then and all the other chariots in Egypt. Do you get that? With, with officers over them all. So not just your, these random guys. I want the officers on these chariots. So it is, it is going to be a formidable army coming after these, these slaveries. Now, you and I don't have really an emotional reaction to the word chariot, right? We, we don't live in a world where chariot is like, oh, oh, scare, fear. But if you were a person living in the Near East, or the ancient Near East during that time of the Exodus, your heart would have been stricken with fear. Chariot was a significant military weapon, and the Egyptians had a well-developed chariot army. The flat terrain would provide it a soldier to travel very quickly while maintaining a very active fighting position. These were the fighting machines of the day. 
So the force coming to Israel is a formidable army with an enormous military might. Huge. Verse 7 tells us that there were about 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. There was a large fighting force and understandably intimidating. But verse 8 reminds us that God is working behind the scenes. Once again, we see that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. His pursuit of Israel to the bank of the Red Sea was a symptom of his rebellion against the God of Israel. So the military force, with all of its earthly might, is still being orchestrated by God's command. All of this is to set up the context for what is to come next. The focus of the text just shifts from Pharaoh to an emotional response that happens in the heart of the people of God. Verse 10 tells us what happened. As Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. They could hear the noise. They could see the dust coming in the, in the background. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Notice the pattern. They saw, they feared, and they cried, right? The word, the, now the use of the word cried here is by design again. When we started our study in Exodus, we look back into Exodus chapter 2, and it said during these times, during the days of the king, when the, <laughs> during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned out because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up from God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So, so what do we have here? This, this verse serves as a signature text for the book of Exodus. This book is about God's response to the cry of his people. Remember this mini-series is going to be God, the God who provides? The God who provides? But this book is also about the way God's people forget how responsive God has been in their lives. You see, even though Israel had just watched Egypt be totally humiliated with the ten plagues, they quickly fall into panic. What they saw with their eyes caused fear in their hearts. And no matter how great or how near the deliverance of God was in their life, they were prone to absolute despair. Even though God was working behind the scenes, even though God had proven himself historically as trustworthy and good, and even though he had fulfilled every one of his promises, what they saw was powerful enough to trump all of that. Israel's fear quickly became an irrational blame game. They turned on Moses, and they said things that seemed absolutely ridiculous. However, isn't this what fearful panic does? It will tempt you to lose your emotional and your, your spiritual moorings. Verses 11 and 12 give us like three sarcastic questions and a summary of what is really happening in their heart. They said, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Can you hear that? Really? You took us out because there were no graves in Egypt? 
You want us to die out here instead? Start our own little cemetery? Is that why you've done this to us? Or why have you done, what have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Really? Have you not seen the hand of the Lord working amazing things? Do you not trust him? Have you not seen him deliver and provide for you and care for you? Is he not strong and mighty to save? And then they get to the last one. Is this not what you have said, we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Leave us alone. These aren't questions. These are, these are panic statements. We're going to die. You've killed us. And we told you this would happen. Faced with the looming threat of, of Pharaoh's army and the memory of God's prior victory is gone. It can evaporate that fast. But the reason they are saying all this is because of what is written in the last part of verse 12. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Did you pick that up? This is a loaded statement because the confrontation between God and Pharaoh regularly revolved around the issue of whom should Israel serve. In verse 4, chapter 4, 23, God said to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. Therefore, the people are suggesting that serving God is going to lead them to death and it would be better for them to serve Pharaoh, although miserable and although under captivity and although under duress. It is better for me to serve Pharaoh than to be free and serve God. Don't miss the implications of this statement because it is what often happens when what you see leads to fear, which leads to panic. Being afraid is one thing. And there are times when fear crosses a line. And I think we see it here. The circumstances of the moment do not look good at all. But it's important for us to learn from Israel's failure. There's a reason why this is recorded in the Bible. It is to remind us that God is worthy to be trusted. God is worthy to be trusted. I'm sure you've had times in your life when it is really tempting to give in to fearful panic. I've faced seasons and situations like that for sure. And in these moments, I find it helpful to do a few things. One, I find it helpful to remind my soul that just because I feel something, just because I feel something, doesn't make it necessarily true. Just because I feel it doesn't make it true. The older I get, the less I trust my, my feelings or my emotions. Kind of wisdom starts clicking in, I go, Okay, I know what's going on here. I feel this, but I also know the reality of what's going on. I try to remind myself that I've been, Paul, I've been here before. I've been here before. And this freaking out is not helping a thing. Come on, Paul. I'm feeling stupid feelings, stupid emotions. I know better. In fact, it can even be sinful. Secondly, Second helpful thing is, I rehearse what God has done. 
This begins with rehearsing the gospel. The greatest moment of deliverance in my life. But it also involves rehearsing the ways in which God has taken care of me over the past. For some of you, maybe the best thing for you to do is to journal so that you can rehearse better. You're going back and saying, my heart is panicking. I, I'm getting high blood pressure right now. I'm breaking out into hives. i got a cold sweat going on. I'm pitting out in really ugly ways right now. I, I, I can't remember a thing. Go back. Look at your journal and say, oh, that's amazing how God is always faithful to me. Even in those difficult times, I see his hand at work. Rehearse what God has already done. And here's the third thing. And maybe the most important thing, I choose by faith. I choose by faith to believe that God has purposes for me beyond what I can see. I choose by faith to believe that God has a purpose beyond what I can see and what I can understand. Beyond all this, I trust in God's hand. He's trustworthy. While the circumstances might not look easy or be easy, they're always for the good. So I try, God helping me, to move beyond what I see and what I feel to what I believe in the very character of God. I try not to let my eyes, direct my eyes to my emotions and my emotions to direct my heart. That leads us to the third lesson for this text. Live by faith. Exodus 14, 13. I, Laura and I were talking about this last night. It's probably one of my most favorite verses in the Bible. It's a verse I go back to in those times when I'm scared to death and I don't know what's going on. Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. I love that. Fear not. Stand firm and watch. And God's going to do this work for you. You just have to be silent. Moses issues a clarion call for faith in the midst of fear and panic. The charge here is for the people of God to replace their despairing perspective with a firm trust in the Lord. Trust in Him. Therefore, Moses tells them to do three things. Fear not. I find it enormously helpful that Moses didn't focus on the ridiculous things that people were saying. He just got lambasted by these, these Israelites who were basically knocking his leadership, his character. Instead, what did he do? He dealt with the core issue. Fear. And he confronted the root issue. And then he says, stand firm. The idea here is that the people were to stay right where they were. He didn't say, stand firm and grab yourself a, a rock because you don't have anything else to, 
to throw at this oncoming onslaught of 600 chariots and all the other chariots in, in Egypt. He didn't say, find a big stick. He didn't say, no, he just said, stand firm. Stay right where you are. Don't go climbing up into the mountains. Don't go swimming in the sea. It's going to do you no good. Stand firm. They are between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. And even though it was absolutely scary, they were right where they should be. God placed them there. They have perfect seats. Perfect seats for seeing what God is going to do. Scout seats. The best seats in the house. You just get to watch. And then he says, see the salvation of the Lord. Their eyesight had led them to fear, but Moses calls them to wait on the Lord because they are going to see something even greater. You think that's going to look bad? That looks ominous? That looks scary? <laughs> you are going to see God deliver in an amazing way. Just watch the salvation of the Lord. You saw it before. Watch this. Israel is looking at the armies as a serious threat to their safety. But Moses hints at the fact that they are about to see the destruction of a military threat. God is going to give them an amazing gift. They need to have eyes that are open. Hearts that can receive. And standing right where they're supposed to be. To receive this gift. He is providing an opportunity to witness the final defeat, and the humiliation of the Egyptian army. And I love verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you will only have to be silent. What a statement and what a lesson to learn. The storyline of Exodus and the entire Bible message of the Bible is that God is the one who delivers his people. You have nothing to do with your deliverance. God is the one who is going to deliver you. In, in other words, God is the one who fights for us. He fights for you. The amazing story of the Bible is that God rescues people who could not rescue themselves. That's our story. Israel's story? Our story. Same story. Again, against impossible odds, and a situation that only looks hopeless, God intervenes. We see that in Exodus, but it's mostly, it's most clearly displayed on the cross. The Bible paints a dark and hopeless picture of the condition of humanity, right? We're unable to save ourselves from ourselves. We are dead in our trespasses. Dead, dead, dead. There's nothing alive in you towards God. You are dead. We are powerless to change our spiritual condition until God rescued us. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, links our dead condition, God's deliverance, and the statement that those things make. Listen to Colossians 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses can by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities 
and put them in open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you hear, even in this, the story of the Exodus? God disarmed them. So the hope of the gospel is that God would be able to fight my battle. And what is my role? What is my role in all of this? My role is to receive his work and trust in him. My role is to put my hope in God's ability to be God. That begins with conversion, but it extends into every area of my life. So it's not just the gospel that saves you, but it's the gospel that continues to save you all through your life. Listen to Romans 8, 32, 31, 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Did he not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Exodus 14 and Romans 8 are in the Bible in order to help us when what we see leads to panic which will tempt us to become weak in our faith. But God calls us to trust in Him. He calls us to live by faith and not by sight. To live by faith, not by sight. God is going to glorify Himself through the destruction of the Egyptian army, but He's also going to glorify Himself through His worthiness to be trusted. God is declaring His power and His grace to the world through this moment. And then what follows is this last point in the remaining section of Exodus 14. It's an amazing deliverance of God's people through the parting of the Red Sea. It's remarkable to note here that this deliverance of Israel was going to come through God creating a path through the very thing that they thought was an absolute impossible barrier. God was going to create a path through a barrier. Only God can do that, right? Verses 15 through 18 show us that the dividing of the Red Sea will simultaneously be the means of deliverance for Israel and the judgment for Egypt. But before the Red Sea was divided, God's presence moved into a protective moment in between the army of Egypt and the people of God. The movement of the cloud is a foreshadowing of the many times when God will stand between his people and their destruction. God's deliverance often involves him standing in the gap. Moses did as he was commanded stretching out his hand over the sea, and God miraculously drove back the sea and divided the water. Could you imagine that scene? Just imagine it. And with, in one verse, it, it's, it's almost minimized. You get that in, in verse 22. And when the people went in, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. Duh. Right? It's one of those, it seems minimized. The water's being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. It's like no big deal for God. <laughs> Look, dry ground. And they walked through. 
And in one verse, we see this beautiful deliverance of God. The people of Israel walk through the Red Sea by a providentially appointed path. While at the same time, God protects them by preventing the Egyptians from, from pursuing them. And then we find what comes next. They come. Egypt comes. And, and then they also, Egypt senses they are in danger. And that, at once again, God is working on their behalf. God is working on their behalf. And the scene ends with a definitive difference between Israel and Egypt. There's a big difference. God said to Moses in verses 26 and 28, Stretch out your hand again over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So no one is left. There's no, no other people. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. Could you imagine the at that moment? Both sides of the sea were being held back. And then Moses stretched out his hand, and it went back to its normal course. What a mess at that moment. Waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Israel that, rem- that followed them in the sea. Not one remained. And in that significant moment, God made a statement. Verses 29 to 30. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the water being a wall on their right and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. God saved his people again. Once again, he showed his power and his might. And once again, God showed that he was worthy to be trusted. And this moment, though, the reality is, is that this moment will not last forever in Israel's heart. They will be tested in trusting the Lord again. They will struggle in not giving, not wanting to give in to what they saw and what they feel, just like you and me. But the Red Sea crossing will become a defining moment for, in history for Israel, as almost significant as the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is in the New Testament. This moment, like the cross, is meant for the people of God to be reminded that in the midst of their greatest fears, in the midst of your greatest fears, The God who delivers his people is a God who provides. No matter what your fear is today, the very God who saved you is the very same God who provides for you. So friends, do not Do not fear. Friends, in the midst of whatever it is that is striking your heart, stand still. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord again. Amen? Let's pray.